You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks, and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together. Happy New Year, Ben. Happy New Year. First episode of the new year on the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm Matt. Matt. Yeah, I'm Matt. Yeah, I'm Ben Strinky. We're here with Gravity Leadership, and we've got a podcast for you today. We've got, well... Have we got a podcast podcast for you? you. Yeah, we're starting a new series today. Are we? Is this it? This is the start of the new series that we've been been recording these for a little while. Yeah, can I go ahead and introduce it? You can. How to be a better homemaker with Ben and Matt. Yes, and And Sky Jatan. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, does anybody say homemaker anymore? I don't know. Is that a... a, Is there like like a modern word for it? Homemaker. Um... I kind of like the word home. I mean, as I think about it, I'm like, I could get into being a homemaker, like a make making the home. It feels uh, there's home makeovers, and those are those shows are huge. Yeah, those shows are huge. But a homemaker is more of like you stay at home and you clean and dust and yeah. Read, but I mean, read th- good th- if you think about the word though, like the word is actually kind of a. I think there's some honor in it. Well, it was, I'm making I'm making this place what it is. You know, homemaker. Um, actually, that's my that's my Christmas life goals. That was my Christmas Eve sermon. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Homemaker. Homemaker? Yeah. It's going to be about homemaking. Okay. It's going to be like eight minutes long. Well, right. we're, we're recording this before Christmas Eve. We are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, and you haven't heard my sermon yet, but you no. will, buddy. Yeah, good. Good. I want you, you to, I want you to uh, do a blog version of it. Oh, gosh. I got to write, though, man. That's yeah, like, come on. You can do it. <sighs> I know. You can do it. I need... 
All right. Well, this is probably confusing because either we published this blog post or we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> You'll anyway, know if I got around to it. Recording before Christmas. Yeah. Right. So this is Sky Jatani. He's a friend. I've known Sky for uh, 10 years plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is... I love the tensions that Sky holds. Mm-hmm. Um, he's able to hold space open between polarities yeah. and dualities that divide us. He's able to stand in the middle and hold open spaces for us to see things that we can't otherwise. And today, yes. he does that with uh, deconstruction. Yes. And in which partic- is, yes, which is our new series. I mean, you, oh, you yeah. made a joke about it's not homemaking. What's yeah. our new series? Our new series <laughs> is uh, how to deconstruct without destroying your faith. Yeah. Uh, most of us are in a disorienting, deconstruct, uh, deconstructing area. Many people come to Gravity Leadership are looking for handles or guides or guideposts to help point them into a new way of being faithful, mm-hmm. because the old way of being faithful is increasingly not working or uh, just bereft of meaning for them. Yes. And so Sky is one of the voices yeah. that has helped us, mm-hmm. I think, in navigating a non-reactionary way forward. Yeah. Reconstructing really without just reacting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, his, uh, this is really helpful, really important. Um, we'll put uh, links and stuff uh, to his podcast, which is uh, also really helpful in the show oh, notes. Oh, yeah, the Holy Post. Holy Post, yeah. One of the... It's probably... A, I don't know what the subscribers are. I mean, it feels like everybody listens yeah, to that podcast. Yeah, he's got it. Yeah. I mean, it's really well done, and yeah. Phil Vischer's VeggieTales uh-huh. guy hosts Veggie it with guy, him. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, anyway, that, that's the interview for today. Um, oh, just one announcement uh, to bring to you. We're doing a uh, Enneagram workshop. Well, a couple announcements. We're doing an Enneagram workshop later in the month in Indianapolis, uh, our home uh, city here. It's just actually north, just, just, north. just north in Carmel. Carmel. Um, so January 24th, 25th, we'll put a uh, link in the show notes. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you, uh, join us, uh, for that. And, um, also, <laughs> what do you got there, Matt? That's good. That's the Enneagram workshop sound. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the Sky <laughs> podcast train. It's coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here it comes. Here it comes. All right. Uh, and if you are in the midst uh, of deconstruction, I will also commend to you uh, Gravity Leadership Academy. Um, yes. It is our... It, it is our it reconstruction. Kind of, it I is mean, our is reconstruction us. of like, this is us reconstructing our faith and writing it down. And then training others. and giving it yeah, away. Training yeah, training and giving it away. So uh, it's a great it's a great space. If you're a pastor, if you're a leader, um, and you find yourself in the midst of like, I, I don't know what I believe about hell anymore. I don't know what I, you know, I'm not sure this works for me anymore, but you've also got a a paycheck and a mortgage and it's not as easy to just sort of say, well, whatever. Um, Or uh, if you just want a a way forward, uh, I'd encourage you to check it out. Um, It's 10 months, it's coaching and training, it's weekly calls, it's pretty intensive, Mm. um, but uh, it's probably the most transformative thing we do. It's kind of why we exist in some ways. Mm -hmm. So uh, check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes to that. And uh, we're, we're always starting new cohorts. We start about one every, we try to start one every month yeah. or so. Yeah. And so uh, if you're interested in that, just uh, reach out and uh, we'll go from there. Is that it? Oh, that's it. That's well, all we got. One more thing? Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> that's it probably. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> uh, all right, friends. Enjoy this interview with Sky. Guy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. 
Glad to be here. It's good to have you. Uh, this is uh, Sky Jathani. He's a friend. We, we go back a while, a ways. Yes, to your uh, CMA kind of days. Yeah. Mm. Well, in your in your bio, you talk about being an ordained pastor. Are you still ordained in the CMA? I, I am. Okay. Are you in a, doing anything in an official Christian and Missionary Alliance capacity? I, I, I'd i say the only official capacity I have is for the last few years, I have served on the district's licensing and ordination council. Oh, Ooh. the LNO. So yes. you get to... <laughs> the you LNO. Get, that's what they call <laughs> You get to grill people about um, whether they drink booze or not, or if they believe in a no. literal six-day creation. Is this, does no, this still that, go down? <laughs> the... I don't want to say too much about the other. I find that part of my role on that committee is to ask more relevant questions than have typically been asked (laughs) (laughs) and try to steer, to steer the evaluation of these candidates in a direction, at least that I think is more relevant to their uh, calling into ministry. Well, that's, Mm. that makes sense. It totally makes sense. That's appropriate because I think that what you're doing on the license and uh, licensing and ordination committee is kind of what you're doing in your ministry overall Asking more relevant questions and calling us back to what actually matters. Yeah, I mean that. I'd I'd like to think that. Sure. Yeah. 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 Well, that's why we invited. <laughs> I mean, my better moments. <laughs> yeah. That's why we invited you to join us. We're doing a series on how to deconstruct your faith without losing it. Or I'm I'm stuck in asking these questions. Mm-hmm. I can't practice this thing that I've inherited. Or is the only thing yeah. to is the only thing to je- do? I just jettison this stuff yeah. and go into I- this secular ditch. Or and, double down on, or like, just, down. just believe it harder. Yeah. You know, get those doubts out of your head. Like, believe, that's, believe I harder. think, the other, the other ditch is that, is just, like, stop questioning your faith. Trust, just, you know, stop it. Yeah, and that just feels like turning your brain off. So, mm-hmm. Sky, uh, you're an author, uh, you're a consultant, you're on the uh, Holy Post podcast. Is it called that now, not the Phil Vischer podcast? Is the name changed? No, no, no. We've, it's been uh, about two years, I, I don't know, something okay. like that. We've... We've become the Holy Post. That's good because you're the on that Holy podcast Post. too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But when we started it, it was it was the Phil Vischer podcast for for reasons unrelated to the podcast. And early on, Phil was like, "Oh, this is really both of us. We should change the name." And I'm like, "Nah, it doesn't matter because it's it's got traction. Let's leave it." And then a couple of years ago, Phil got super busy with other projects, and he and we decided I would take over more of the management of the podcast. And he says, "All right, we really need to change the name now," and that's where we changed it to Holy Post. Yes. Well, if you enjoy. Culture, comedy, and theology. I highly recommend it. It's a great it's a great podcast. You guys do a great job. Yeah. We like to say we're the only Christian podcast that has a reoccurring segment called News of the Butt. It's <laughs> true. How is it spelled? B U T T. Okay, great. It's right. that butt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It is that butt. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm it's not like it's, a clever is, double entendre no. kind of thing. Okay. No, 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 no. This is Phil. This is Phil doing his thing and he finds a uh-huh. news story that like the last one we did was about a a new Chinese toilet that will um, immediately diagnose what you have deposited and give you health <laughs> information about yourself. Oh, I see. So, so it's just, yeah, it's just this is the kind of relevant, important information yeah. that Christians need to know. I mean, yeah. That sounds really fascinating. It's a daily part of I mean, most could, people's lives. So, yeah, yeah. Well, Sky, we want to just chat a bit about some of the things that the people we work with at Gravity Leadership, some of the things that we have dealt with uh, as pastors and leaders in America over the last several, well, last decade or so, two decades, mm-hmm. um, and just get your take on them. I think you have a really unique perspective and helpful perspective on how to uh, assess and navigate comp- complicated, complex, 
uh, cultural issues. One of them is this. I want to ask you about this. What the heck is going on with evangelicalism, man? <laughs> can you se- can you settle that for us once and for all? Like, what is with it? Oh my goodness, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I think this the, the simplest way to answer that is American evangelicalism is simply reaping what it's sown, <laughs> and it's t- it's taken decades for that fruit to be evident, but it's now here. And um, some people think that fruit is fantastic. And there's an increasing number of people, especially the younger you go, that see that fruit as rather rotten. So I don't think, I mean, Dallas Willard was always fond of saying, and he was probably quoting someone else, that your system is perfectly designed to produce the results you are experiencing. Mm -hmm. So I don't think what evangelicalism is experiencing is an anomaly. And it's not a... um, a unique, weird set of circumstances that emerged in 2016. I think it is the fruit of a system. It's, it is designed to produce what it's producing. Wow. And the fact that we're now seeing it is actually, I think, part of God's grace, that we are recognizing the reality of what we have sown, and it's, a, it's an invitation to change. Mm-hmm. Yes. So would you, would you argue then, I've heard some people talk about how the word evangelical has been hijacked. Mm-hmm. by, you know, po- politicians and that kind of thing. Um, but what I hear you saying there is that, no, it's not that it's been hijacked away from its, away from what it used to be, but th- that in many ways it actually is what it always has been, and we're just seeing it for the fruit that it's actually producing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, would you, th- yeah. kind of. There's two different things there. The word itself is is wonderful. I have mm-hmm. no issues with the word. I mean, right. it, as you well know, it comes from the Greek euangelion. It simply means good news or gospel. And any Orthodox Christian would say that they want to build their faith around the gospel. That's great. So I don't think the word has been hijacked. It certainly wasn't hijacked in 2016 or even in the emergence of the religious right in the 70s or 80s. Uh, I'd say it's been problematic for a while because it's become associated with a certain cultural expression of Christianity that is not solely gospel-centered. The analogy I would use, the other way I would think about this is compare it to social media. We've all seen the toxicity of social media and what we uncover on Twitter and Facebook and other places where you see the worst of humanity come forward. Mm -hmm. You can blame social media for that, or you can say, this has always been true of humanity and our people. It's just now there's a medium that allows hmm. it to express itself in an unfiltered way, and it's we're getting a really ugly glimpse of what's truly in us. Hmm. Similarly, I think evangelicalism has always had these kind of uh, ungodly undercurrents, hmm. but certain cultural things have occurred that have brought that to the surface to help us see what's really always been there. And you can blame those cultural changes to, for revealing those things. Or we can take a deeper look at what are we actually producing in white American evangelicalism that is leading to this rot in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Like, what haven't we seen up until now that that will cause us not just to say, well, I guess we can't use that word anymore, but to maybe do some more deeper repentance and say, what, yeah, what can, have we not seen? What do we need to see? What do we need to you say? You can change no the word and have the same problem. Right. So it's, yeah. it's, it's not about labels or it, yeah. there's something deeper going on. Yeah, that's good. There's this cosmetic sort of reaction to, if I just eschew the label evangelical, I can get mm-hmm. away from all that's associated with it. Right. Uh, but, that's not me. Right. Know. But the, it's, in some ways, um, and you talk about this in your book, Immeasurable, there's there's a whole lot of what's happening in evangelicalism isn't unique to evangelicalism, but rather mm-hmm. it's a symptom of being in a, you also talk about this in Divine Commodity, uh, that there's a symptom of being an American 
like a particularly a white American Christian and evangelicalism is sort of part of that, mm-hmm. but it's not to blame for it or even it's not sequestered there. Yeah. Is that, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, there are currents in American culture that form us in a certain way. We shouldn't be surprised when we see those things manifest themselves in various religious traditions. And there isn't a silver bullet answer here. There isn't like, well, if we all just become Eastern Orthodox, we'll, we'll be right. over this. Or if, right. if we all just adhere to the the models and methods of, of the black American experience, then we'll, we'll extract ourselves from these. They each have their own unique problems. Yeah. So there isn't a, uh, it isn't like just white American evangelicalism is toxic and everything else is okay. Yeah. Mm. We just have to diagnose the toxicity in each yeah. of these traditions and recognize yeah. it and, and disciple accordingly. Yeah. And if you are a white evangelical, you know, Christian and you know like who maybe, you are, right. Uh, maybe start there. <laughs> you know, instead of diagnosing the problems in, you know, the black American church or the Eastern Orthodox church or whatever, you know, yeah, those problems will maybe be a little bit easier to see, you know, for all of us. Yeah, logs but, and, logs but let's and start in our own them. house, yeah. you know, and, and repent there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I, I think what gets most difficult is when uh, the three of us might sit here for whatever time we have and diagnose some of those problems. What's really painful is when other evangelical leaders see the same issue and they actually celebrate it as a good thing. Yes. That's the hard part is yeah. when we can't agree on what the problem is and, and fundamentally misdiagnose or, or see them, you know, call evil, good, good, evil, as Isaiah would say, that's where I think we get into huge problems. Yeah. One of those situations that's playing out, I think on a cultural level and then also on in a, in a church level, and you sort of have a front row seat for this being in the, uh, you said the Medina a Medina of uh, evangelical Christianity there in Wheaton, Illinois, is the sort of the Church Two movement, right? Where leaders and denominations of churches, large denominations and large churches, are being exposed for um, anywhere from just sort of bombastic, narcissistic, abusive leadership to actually preying upon um, in, a, in a, a sexually abusive way women and or children. Sky, I wonder how do you understand? How do you understand what is being revealed there and how we need to respond um, as Christians in this cultural moment to uh, what, what is, <laughs> you know, what is being revealed as the people who position themselves to be experts on leadership and experts on women in ministry are being exposed for knowing nothing about leadership and abusing women in ministry? Like, what do we do with that? Where do we go from there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um you know, my bias is that there's nothing new under the sun. So when a, an issue emerges, I, my mind goes to, well, what in history is this analogous to? Or what? Hmm. when has this happened in the past? And my best effort at that, looking at the current scandals that are plaguing a lot of uh, white suburban affluent evangelicalism, is it looks an awful lot like the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And the scandals of that era that led to the Protestant Reformation, oh boy. Um, yeah. the, the the abuses of power, yep. the exaltation of leadership, um, the financial shenanigans that went on, the um, hmm. I mean, the selling of indulgences, right? This idea right. that the financial stability of the institution of the church was leveraging people's spiritual um, insecurities and superstitions. Hmm. Yeah. So. 
But I think one of the core elements where there's a parallel is, ironically, even though most evangelicals would consider themselves staunchly Protestant in their theology, we have uh, completely abandoned the idea of a priesthood of all believers. Hmm. And so many so American true. evangelicals now live their faith vicariously through their celebrity pastor. Leader. Come on. Yep. And when you do that, you have to, uh, when that leader and his or her faults are exposed, you have to do everything you can to prop them up, to keep them on the pedestal, to maintain their holier perception. Yeah. Because if they fall, not only will the faith of thousands or who knows, millions of people be impacted, but hundreds of people may lose their jobs. Families right. will be destitute, ministries will crumble. And so there's this too big to fail kind of model mm-hmm. because so much is built on the personality of that celebrity yeah. pastor. Yeah. And that looks an awful lot like what was going on in medieval Catholicism. It really does. And, and it, it just it never goes well because it's not not only is it a foolish way to organize any group of people, but it's a really terrible application of, of New Testament theology. Right. Yeah, we thought if we got rid of priests, uh, we'd have the priesthood of all believers, but we just found different people to basically put in those positions. Yeah. yeah. Right. And Fascinating. You, you talk about this more in depth in your book, Immeasurable, with um, the chapter's platform and celebrity. Um, mm-hmm. And your tagline on celebrity is, is powerful, and I, I, I would love it if you could just expand upon this a bit. The tagline is, how authority in the church is now determined by the marketplace rather than maturity. Ooh. Um, right. <laughs> this is what you're describing, though, yeah? Yeah, it is. This is what I've also called the evangelical industrial complex. Right. So, um, whether you're looking at the New Testament or perhaps healthier moments in church history, the way leaders were supposed to be chosen was based on the, the maturity of their faith and the fruit of their lives, right? Yeah. Through their character, through their relationships, are they trustworthy? Are they godly? Do they have the gifts of maturity over mm-hmm. time that are that are visible that they should be given more authority and influence? That's yes. what Scripture teaches. That's what right. Paul says to Timothy. That's what the church has historically done. Um, within American evangelicalism, because we tend to have a very low ecclesiology, uh, and we've we've it's really a movement built on uh, capitalism and market forces, what we tend to do is we find somebody who's particularly gifted, a gifted speaker especially, and realize, oh, that that person's able to draw a crowd. And we don't look at their theology necessarily. We don't look at their maturity. We don't look at the godliness of their character over time. We just realize, oh my goodness, they're effective at preaching and drawing a crowd. And next thing you know, they're getting a book contract and then they're put on a platform at a big conference. And then they're given, you know, Mm -hmm. more and more and more influence because they make more and more money for publishers and for conference organizers mm. and for you know music companies yeah. and and it goes on and on and yeah. and before you know it they're in that too big to fail thing mm. so that's what i mean by the marketplace is the one who determines and i saw this up yeah. close both in my role at christianity today and then in my years just in kind of christian publishing early on i remember being in a, a hotel suite with some executives from a christian publisher and it was kind of my introduction to that world a little bit. And I was talking to one of them about just the state of the industry. And this executive said to me, this was probably 2008, six, something like that. Hmm. He said to me in today's Christian publishing environment, Eugene Peterson never gets a publishing contract. Yes. That's what I was just thinking about. Because he didn't have a big mega church. He didn't have huge platform influence. He's a brilliant, godly pastor 
with an amazing ability to communicate and teach through writing, but that in today's environment is not what gives you influence. He, he it's wouldn't merely the fact enough. that you have a bazillion followers yeah, on YouTube that's right. or a mega church and they don't, yeah. they don't care about the rest of it. And then His we're shocked when have been big enough. Yeah. yeah. Right. So then we're shocked when these people who are given massive platforms come crashing down because they didn't have the character, yes. the gravity of soul, you know, to, to, to bear carry the, it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was just, as you were talking, Sky, I was just thinking like, like Dallas Willard didn't even have a church. You know what I mean? Like he was like a Sunday school teacher who taught philosophy at USC. He never gets, <laughs> he would have never figured out Twitter. Like, you know, he would never would have gotten a contract. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's crazy. So then Sky, I think a lot of our listeners hear you talk and they're, uh, if they're not um, crashing their car into a guardrail and frothing at the mouth, like they're just amening and high-fiving. <laughs> um, I, I do think though, that this, asks, this begs the question. So for many young Christians, um, and maybe um, older Christians too that have grown up and identify as an evangelical Christian or, or continue to worship or serve at evangelical church, the, the kinds of cultural forces you're naming, celebrity, uh, the marketplace or capitalism, uh, money, power, these things bother, like at a visceral gut spiritual level, bother them more than the arguments over how do we describe the Bible's authority or... Um, uh, uh, the other things that kind of drive evangelical ethics and, and morality. Uh, and, and so how do you, what, what sort of advice or guidance can you give for people f- to whom that, that really drives them nuts and they feel all alone, like nobody else really cares about this? Yeah. Yeah, well, hopefully they don't feel alone because they're listening to a podcast like this and realize there are other people who recognize these factors. Yes. Um, Amen. Uh, what I would warn against is the, that sort of the grass is always greener mindset that, as we said earlier, just jump to a different tradition and mm. it'll solve all these problems. It might solve some of these problems, but you will inherit some new ones. Yep. <laughs> a friend of mine always said to me, the grass looks greener, but it still needs to be mowed. Mm. Right? There's yeah. still yeah. work on that side of it. So it, yeah. it, I'm not saying you never leave a, a church or tradition. Maybe there's good reasons to do it, but don't think that that's going to solve all your problems. Yeah. In my experience, what has helped dramatically is to uh, root your faith far more in in immediate, incarnate, intimate relationships hmm. rather than merely hitching your wagon to an institution. Yep. Yes. So pray for and seek out godly women and men in your life who smell like Jesus. Yeah. And build those connections and relationships. And that may happen within one of those flawed institutions. Mm-hmm. It may happen outside of those flawed institutions. But at the end of the day, that's what it's about. So uh, another kind of parallel, our American bias, this is a theme that comes up in, in, in Measurable quite a bit, is we want to industrialize ministry. We want to make it this, efficient. this big, yeah. efficient right uh, process. You know, Here's your steps to becoming a disciple of Jesus. There's some level to which that might be okay, but we would never think about raising our children that way, Hmm. right? Raising children requires a home. It requires love. It requires intimacy and relationship and, and, and a personal knowledge of that child to nurture and care for them. We take them to school. We count on a community. It requires more than just a mom and a dad. Like it it takes a village to that old cliche, but at the end of the day, the village is never a replacement for, those intimate relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think making a disciple is the same thing. It isn't about just plugging into some institution and following the program and 
knowing Jesus. You have to have those intimate relationships. And when we don't have them, and all we have is a flawed, screwed up institution, it's easy to run away and say, oh, it's all a load of crap. I'm out of here. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. We Without that spiritual father, mother, brother, sister dynamic going on on some level, I don't know what hope there is. So that's the, that's my first thing is you've got to find those relationships that, and cultivate them. That's what helped me a lot. I think, I think part of deconstruction is naming the construct you're inhabiting, which is what mm-hmm. you're doing, Sky, for us even now. And then choosing not to simply try to get away from the unhealthy construct as though that will get you into some health or maturity or vibrancy of life. Just, just by leaving something that is tainted. Right. right. Yeah. But I, th- I remember being in seminary, which is always kind of a, well, not always, but frequently a, a desert experience for many people. They, you know, they go to Mecca and they, they find it, um, you know, maybe you're the people that you idolize, the celebrities, mm-hmm. they aren't as great up close or um, thinking about God all day doesn't make you closer to him, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I remember what was life for me, Sky, is exactly what you're saying. Meeting people, and I remember I remember meeting, um, I remember meeting Dallas, actually, Willard, who you quoted earlier, and thinking, uh, in a time of really a big deconstruction for me, and just thinking, I don't know how I answer all these old questions that I used to be certain about, mm-hmm. but what I do know is I want to know the Jesus Dallas knows. Yeah. Like, I... I want to meet that Jesus, and mm-hmm. I want—I actually want to become like this person because I've—I'd never met somebody in whom the uh, the fruit of the spirit was so palpable and thick. Yeah, does that make yeah. does that make sense? Did you? I mean, absolutely. I, yeah, and that's what totally. I, I think that's one of the—I um, don't want to say it's a problem, but it's one of the dilemmas that pop American evangelicalism is having is. A, a lot of, especially younger people, but plenty of older people too, are looking at the leaders they put on these pedestals mm. and they're recognizing they have really rotten fruit, right? Mm-hmm. I, they don't look and smell like Jesus. I don't want to be like them. And then what ends up happening is you meet somebody from another tradition, whether Christian or otherwise, who holds very different theology and you go, oh my goodness, like they have more compassion and love and grace and maturity and fruit of the spirit than I found in this, uh, in my evangelical tradition. So I'm going to jump ship from that one to this one. And the reality is I would argue there are wonderful, godly evangelicals. Dallas Willard would probably be in that category of a generally Mm -hmm. evangelical theology. And there are really rotten mainline progressive people and fun. Like the the, good fruit is not limited to one religious tradition or one Christian tradition. Neither is rotten fruit. Mm. So I just want to warn against as you put it earlier, jumping from one to another, thinking that's going to solve everything. Yeah, totally. Yep. I hear I hear you saying find people. You know, I think I think Barna came out with some research recently. I think I heard this from Barna that most young people, people under the age of thirty, aren't asking the question anymore: Is Christianity true? Right. They're asking: Is Christianity good? Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, what I hear you saying is, Sky, if you're if you're going through disillusionment or discouragement with your tradition, your church, like find people mm-hmm. that that will. Um, Take your question seriously, but also will orient you and point you towards Jesus, either through example or just like this grace-filled space of being present yes. with them. Yes. Um, yeah. And and you talk about this a little bit in your hmm. book with, which um, I I don't know if you've I mean you, have you actually have you heard I've heard people people bring that book up to me, uh, like out of the blue as like being a life-changing book for them, like vital. Yeah, I'm. I'm in- I'm encouraged when I get notes like that from time to time and yeah. um, grateful that, I mean, that book came out in 2011 and I think every year since it came out, it's grown in hmm. its 
reach. Yeah. Interesting. So there's yeah, there's some momentum on that one. I think it's I think part of what with does is it it actually points a way forward. It gives us an orientation through I mean what's commonly referred to as reconstruction. Right. Because it, it's a you are in that book you propose I think realigning how you moor yourself in reality. Mm. Um in a in a relationally present God. That that's my take. But why do you th- I, would you agree? Is that why it's so popular? What, what do people tell you? Yeah. Why is that so helpful? Well, I think it, it, hopefully I'm not saying anything in that book that other people haven't already said. Part of what makes it, to use your word, life-changing for people, is it's organized in really simple, accessible categories. Hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's just, I use those five prepositions over, under, from, for, and with to define different ways people relate to God. And I think that that simplicity resonates with their experience Yes, uh, and diagnoses how they've been mis, uh, misapplying or, or misunderstanding the Christian life. So I remember talking to, um, oh, good grief, Saddleback, Rick Warren years ago. And, you know, that was at the height of the purpose-driven life thing. And he would argue all he did in that book was take age-old Christian ideas and make them super simple, put the cookies on a lower shelf. And that's why that book did so well. And Hmm. a little bit, I think that's what with has done is it's taken nothing new, but simplified it and made it accessible for people where they resonate and can figure out what they've been doing wrong. Yeah. And I think there's something too about the timeliness of it that I I think that is one of the things that, that so many people are waking up to um, is just that the fundamentally uh, well, let's come back to it again, life-changing. Like, it, 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 it fundamentally changes the way you see and navigate reality to, to think about and to have in your mind and in your heart a God who is with you, right? Yeah. Like, that, it just changes everything. Yeah, and that's what we do at Gravity. I mean, Sky, we're, we're not, um, we don't use your book, but our project is in alignment through your book. It's actually not just telling people, hey, God is present with you, but actually training them on how to live as live like that. You know, if you can't live in a monastery and you're not mm-hmm. uh, in a right. in a seminary basement just reading Charles Hodge's systematic theology all day, like what do you, how do you actually live like that as an accountant or as a as a mom or when you go to you know when you go to the grocery store, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Um, yeah. I just started reading a book by John Walton on Old Testament theology, and mm-hmm. he organizes the entire Old Testament theology under the theme or topic of presence. Yeah, and yep. I think I think we're awakening to that. You know, John Walton's one of your neighbors there in Wheaton, and uh, yeah, 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 he's a of, he's a member of my church. Oh, oh cool! He's kind of a big deal. That guy, hmm. he, he likes. To yeah, write. he's a he's a wonderful guy. Um, <laughs> I, this is another example of where I think uh, popular American evangelicalism has repeated the errors of medieval Catholicism. Uh, hmm. You know that that old structure of church was really rooted in this idea that Eusebius presented in the fourth century of a, of a perfect life and a permitted life, right? A perfect mm. life being that of the clergy who right. spend their energy on the things of heaven. And the permitted life is everyone else, the people, the farmers and the fishermen and the right. homemakers or whatever, who are focused on the things of earth. Mm-hmm. And they've created this hierarchy that says all this ordinary life you do in the world doesn't matter to God. He doesn't care about it. And if you really want to be spiritually significant, you need to be involved in ministry. And again, the Protestant Reformation, one of its great uh, strengths was deconstructing that sacred secular divide, that perfect permitted divide. And, And ironically, in the last 100, 150 years, 
the Western church, Protestant evangelicalism has reestablished that hierarchy. Hmm. And it's convinced a ton of people that their ordinary life doesn't matter. Hmm. And that you can't be an accountant and, you know, an artist or a business person and have a really vibrant, meaningful life with God. You need to be doing more church-like stuff. You need to be doing more ministry-like stuff. And so all these assumptions that are just inbred into American evangelicalism are a repeat of historic heresies that have done incalculable damage over the centuries. And we're just doing it all over again. And we shouldn't Mm. be surprised that it's collapsing on itself. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. You got, you got me thinking. Uh, you got me thinking, and kind of excited about you know maybe maybe all this like revealing of the rot underneath the surface. Like you know maybe there's kind of some reformation kind of stuff happening right now uh, for for faith. I mean, hopefully. That's why. I mean, that's why I'm, we're doing this series. I think there's a culture. We're in a liminal moment yeah. where there's enough people that are waking up and saying enough already. And, but, but now what? But now what? Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. there's a. Uh, I'm just. I'm reminded too as you as you chat about sort of apprenticing yourself to people who you want to be like, or finding someone whose quality and maturity of Christian life that you want to emulate. I'm reminded of of Paul in First Corinthians four as he talks about how you know you have ten thousand tutors, right. teachers, but you don't have many fathers. Right. And he talks about becoming a father. Uh, and, and the way he talks about becoming a father in First Corinthians, Sky, as you know, is knowing nothing but the power of the cross. So I'm not mm. gonna I'm not gonna show up on the street corner with my uh, orat- oratory flourish and my rhetorical yeah. panache. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to win at that game. I'm that not going to play, play the Corinth yeah. game. I'm going to come and right. and I'm going to proclaim Jesus Christ, Him crucified. There's going to be a, a sort of a cross shaped, uh, other serving love, and and I'm going to inhabit that among you. And I think. That's the kind of fathering we need. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that connects deeply with with what we need and what what the culture needs. Um that brings me to another thing I'd I'd love for you to hear your thoughts on, Sky, about um our relationship to power. In particular, like white evangelicalism. Uh, you know, you brought up 2016, the election. Um the one of the current narratives about our country is that we are we're, we finally have reclaimed power. Like white Christians have reclaimed power, and we are taking back sort of a, a pagan, secularized country uh, f- through legislation, through um, edicts for Christ. And I think there's a particular relationship to power there that many mm-hmm. of us feel skeptical or uneasy about. There's, we have questions about that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's in, you know, we can maybe hold it up to the power that Paul says he holds in Corinth and ask, What's just, missing? Yeah. What What's missing in our conceptualizations of power, and what does it look like for us to be engaged on the level of, you know, politics? <laughs> how do we do, How do we do that? Yeah. Uh, first off, I I don't think you can separate what's happening now or what's happened in 2016 from uh, what I and some others have referred to as Cold War Christianity. Hmm. The, the white evangelical movement, as we've known it, really emerged you know, with Billy Graham in the 1940s and in the post-World War II era of the Cold War. Mm. And it, it established the United States, I and mean, this is in the 1950s when Eisenhower was president, is when like, In God We Trust is 
put on our money. It's when the uh, one nation under God is added to the pledge of allegiance. Like all this religious stuff is brought into American civil religion (laughs) as a way of emphasizing, we are not godless communists. And the world was divided into an us and them way of thinking. And that mindset galvanized white evangelicalism in the mid 20th century. And it established a a model for looking at the world as a black and white, us versus them, kingdom of light versus kingdom of darkness mindset. Hmm. And I think there's a lot of a deep formative process that happened in those decades that a lot of older white evangelicals still carry with them. They just can't shake that that's how you see the world. But since the fall of communism, since the end of the Cold War, that has kind of turned inward where now the great enemy against us is not the Soviets, it's American liberals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the LGBT community. It's mm-hmm. everybody associated with the Democratic Party. It's, uh, so that us versus them power struggle, if that's really how you see the world, that it's this um, existential threat, yes. then the only option is to seize power. And to try to push the other people out. And I think that mindset is what leads to the religious right. It's what leads to Donald Trump. It's what leads to what you see in current American evangelicalism. But there's a whole bunch of us a little bit younger who we may have, I I know I'm old enough to remember the Cold War really well, but I don't think it fundamentally formed my vision of the world. Hmm. And instead, we grew up in an era in the United States with increasing pluralism and diversity. Yeah, right. uh, recognizing we went to school with kids with all different religious backgrounds. And I had mm-hmm. the benefit of traveling a lot as a kid. My father's an immigrant. Like you and my, most of my family are not Christians. And, and instead of an us versus them, cold war Christianity, we kind of have had to realize I need tools to navigate in a pluralistic society, recognizing that I'm going to encounter all kinds of different people with whom I share certain values and with whom I disagree. Yeah. Yeah. And yet somehow figure out how to manifest the presence of Jesus in the midst of this. And it's a lot more complicated and a lot messier, Mm -hmm. but it's not going to happen by seizing political power and shoving my values down the throat of everyone else. Yeah. Are you sure? It's gotta be a a bottom, a bottom Uh up, a bottom up, uh, collaborative, winsome yes. common good yes. sort of approach yes. that doesn't see everybody that disagrees with me on anything mm. as fundamentally an enemy to be destroyed. Yep. Yeah. And I think this is, I mean, this is where I always come back to like, this is what the early church did. Like there's a, there's, there's a way we've seen a church do this, right? Like we've seen the early church kind of navigate this kind of world from a place of not having power um, and, and being able to actually manifest yeah. the presence of Christ in the midst of a culture that was actively hostile at times yeah. towards them and amb- ambivalent at best. Yeah, but we've seen the black church do this too, right? I mean, sure, yeah, that, yeah there's all kinds of stuff. We've seen Eastern well. European church do this with, in standing up to communists, right? Mm-hmm. We've yeah. seen people influenced by the Sermon on the Mount do this in India. So we've, we've seen this sort yeah. of thing happen. It just feels so, uh, I don't know, there's something like, I, but, but, you know, the, our precious rings guy, you know, you can't take, you can't take the promise of power yeah. away. Don't take, don't take our precious. You know, you, you, you talked about growing up. I, I, I mean, I'm a generation X kid. Um, there's, 
uh, I know the boomers and the millennials are getting all the they're, press right now. They're uh, they're going after it. I just yeah. I just want to say though that um, in gen- I remember as a Generation X kid growing up with the myth of the melting pot, America as the melting pot, right? Mm. And I actually remember when that myth shifted. Like, I, I remember the shifting of that myth from a melting pot, and then there was like this, well, really? Is that really the best metaphor to use to describe what you just, what you just mm-hmm. talked about, the, plur- the plural- plurality and the diversity of America? And I remember it shifting to like this stew, and I remember thinking, maybe as this bridge between uh, this monolithic America and where we're at now, I remember thinking, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. But no big deal. I wasn't. Of, I yeah. wasn't offended that yeah. we weren't a melted pot. I didn't take it personally. I didn't find. Yeah. Okay. Now I got to go get. I got to go buy my guns and make sure the melting pot never happens. I just. I just was like, yeah. That. I guess that makes that comports. But for many of us, the fact that we're not a melting pot is deeply threatening. Yeah. Challenge is something that we deeply believe about ourselves. You know, as well, Americans. Let, right. Yeah. Let me let me defend a little bit the conservative point of view. Believe it or not. Come on, okay. Come on, Sky. Here we go. Um, I mean, we, we the melting pot is problematic for sure. many reasons that we're all probably well aware of. But sure. let me explain why the alternative, this just totally pluralistic environment, is not necessarily good either. Hmm. Um, what was really helpful is I read a sociologist named Galen G. Uh, H-E-L-E-N, German guy. Anyway, he talks about how every society has foreground and background decisions. Foreground decisions are decisions that the individual is consciously aware that they're making. Yeah. Like, you know, you chose what to wear this morning or whatever. Right. That, those are yeah. decisions. I mean, background decisions are decisions that the society or the culture makes for you that you never even consciously think about. Hmm. Um, so a, a vivid example of this is when we were kids, I don't, I can't speak for you. I'll speak for me. When I was a kid, I never, it, the question never occurred to me, am I a boy or a girl? Right. right. Nope. Yeah. Right. Never same, occurred to me. Experience. The question, yeah. what is marriage never occurred to me. Right. Those were background decisions that society had answered hmm. and that was just accepted. Today, both of those are foreground decisions where every young person has to decide, am I really a boy or a girl? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and every American has to decide, well, what, what do I think marriage is? Or yeah. can be. Yeah. Right. So we've taken background stuff and we've shoved it into the foreground. And he goes into why, like in a consumeristic capitalist society, the way you keep capital growing is you have to take more and more background decisions and push them in the foreground decisions. Because you, you oh, commodify them, right? Yeah. Is that what it is? Exactly. So that you can right. make so, money I mean, on them. I mean, yeah. You create a market. Famous, this is, yeah, dude, I'm sorry. The Kevin. famous <laughs> example is, you know, when Henry Ford created the Model T, you yeah. could get it in any color you wanted as long as it was black. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Now you of course can shop and you get all these choices because choice is what creates capital options. Yeah. And that's what's driven our society. Now here's where it really matters. The more background decisions a society has, the more stable it is. Because mm-hmm. there's more that we all that's right. agree upon that without debate. Yep. Right. It's just we it's all shared. We get it. Like we all if everyone speaks English, we don't have to worry about it. If everyone thinks this way about sexuality or this way about cultural norms. And it's, it's a stable society, mm-hmm. but it's also limits individual choice and freedom. The more you push to foreground decisions, the more destabilizing the society becomes because there's less and less that we share or agree upon. Now there's somewhere in there, there's a balance. There's a happy medium where sure. there's enough agreed upon to create stability and enough foreground yes. decisions to create individual freedom and flourishing. And I think what some conservatives are saying, and I think they have a point, 
mm. is we've pushed so much into the foreground yep. and there's so little background we agree on anymore that the whole thing is shaky. It's not stable That's, anymore. Yeah. Yes. And that creates an enormous amount of anxiety for some people. And when people feel anxious and exhausted by all the foreground decisions, the answer, and this is where Galen is brilliant, is fundamentalism. Yes. You run to fundamentalism, whether it's on the left or on the right, because what fundamentalism does is it takes a bunch of those foreground decisions and it pushes them back into the background. So I don't have to think about them anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. The, and that's what I think is going on in American societies. We've become totally destabilized by our pluralism. Mm. And a bunch of people on the left and on the right are running to their fundamentalisms to yep. create some sense of stability. And now they're yeah. warring with each other about which fundamentalism should win. That's really, really helpful. <laughs> it's helpful, Sky. Yeah. A lot. It's not just like this addiction to control, but it also in the background, behind the desire to control is a desire for something that really is good, which is stability. In the Stability's background, good. Right. In the background right. of the foreground, which used to be background, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. In the background of the, f- yeah, <laughs> of the foreground. We're and, pushing and back to, to the background. And just to be clear, yeah. this, is, this is just as prevalent on the left as it is on the right. Sure. Yeah. We, yes. You know, I just don't so, have that. I'm, I'm just not a part of that tribe. I'm not on the inside of that tribe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about the cancel culture that's going right. on. Yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. It's, it's essentially the left saying, these things are not allowed. These... Yeah. Words are not allowed. These ideas are not allowed because that would be too destabilizing for us. We will tell you what's allowed and what isn't. Yep. And you see that in fundamentalist Christianity as well, right? Mm-hmm. On the right. Yeah. 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 So there's this impulse then, I think, Sky. Um, I mean, there, there may be a few people that are like, burn it all down. Let's bring all the background to the foreground and throw people into sort of an anarchy chaos. But there's mm-hmm. also, uh, I think I think we would all agree, there's a lot of things in the background that have perpetuated and hidden injustices. And so part of reckoning with that is bringing them into the foreground so that we can choose them or not and make restitution or reparation for things that were going wrong. Mm -hmm. So how do you navigate that then? I mean, like maybe just personally sky or, or anything helpful you've seen, like how do you navigate, navigate sort of the disoriented dizziness of needing to bring things into we got to make a conscious choice about you know what pronouns we use for people right 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 yeah, yeah. but how do you how do you then navigate the moral and ethical quagmire of 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 doing that in a righteous justice christ-centered way hmm. yeah that's a great question and i don't have a great answer for it other than i mean maybe this is a great answer i don't know but I, I <laughs> oh think we'll let you know i have, I have one answer we'll I well, think, let's let the audience decide. No, I ahead. think this is precisely where uh, the the Christian historic biblical theological practice of repentance, confession, and absolution yes. are a model for us. Mm. So I think what, what our culture wants to do is to say, hey, back in, in the background are these ideas, beliefs, and behaviors which have been totally unjust to some segment of our society that – is evil and wrong and it needs to be brought forward and shamed and destroyed and restitution and you know, all these ter- all this stuff needs to be brought into the light and deconstructed. Mm-hmm. I agree totally. But that, that tends to be where our society stops. We're just going to deconstruct and we have to stop doing these bad things. What Christian theology mm-hmm. would say is, okay, yeah, that needs to happen, but then there needs to be restoration. There right. needs to be a, a new, Another way of putting this, to use Galen's language again, is you can take background stuff and bring it to the foreground and expose it, but you have to put something back in the background to replace it. Hmm. 
to keep the stability. And I think what we've done as a society is we've said, um, you know, the old traditional sexual ethic did a lot of damage to people. This kind of just look at the true love weights kind of abstinence right. movement yeah. stuff that we've, you know, that's did, did some damage. So we need to bring out and show why that's bad, mm-hmm. but we're not going to do anything to replace it. We're left then with a really anemic sexual ethic, which says anything goes as long as there's consent. Yeah. Consent culture. Right. Consent culture. That's it. And, and a lot of people are realizing that's not good either. Right. So we haven't Hugely replaced it with something yeah. Yeah. that is good. Or, I mean, mm. you can take this in a deeply personal way. Like if, if a family member, if somebody wrongs you in some way and you feel victim by that, you want that person, you want to go to them and say, Hey, this happened. And hopefully they repent and they confess. And then there's restoration of relationship and say, right. okay, how are we going to function in this relationship going forward? So that doesn't happen again. And we can both flourish. Yeah. That's the Christian model. That's not what our society does. No. All we do is deconstruct, destroy shame, and then leave the debris everywhere yeah. and don't put things back together. Even, and yeah. that's where I think the left and the right need to come together and realize the right has a point. We need yeah. stability and we need shared values that we can agree upon to move forward. And the left seems like we just want to we want to give you 400 different pronouns mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and leave a bunch of young people without any sense of 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 secure identity because we've said any sexual or gender norms are bad and the rights going, are you nuts? That's you're, you're going to do more harm than good by that just because Mm -hmm. you're trying to protect, you know, somewhere between two and 10% of the population that are sexual minorities. And and there's no agreement anymore about how do we adequately Mm -hmm. repent for the pains we've done in the past, but put together a new background established order that makes sense that is going to bring flourishing rather than just constant deconstruction sky i think you just laid out the outline for your next book (laughs) yeah we'll see i'm working (laughs) on one right now i do think that was a really helpful for the record that was a really helpful answer i'm not sure if you were saying that you don't know you don't have a good answer but that felt like a good one yeah i mean so what what it provokes for me sky is that (laughs) i don't know how it's possible to do that at twenty thousand feet I don't know how mm-hmm. it's possible to do that abstracted yeah. from relationships and the people for whom your answers matter. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Yeah. I, I think you work that out on the ground with someone with gender dysphoria, someone who is um, has major bias and prejudice towards people who don't identify in their uh, birth gender, uh, someone who uh, has been hurt by purity culture and maybe now is getting a divorce because everything that Joshua Harris told them they should expect all their, you know, all their safe saving daddy kissing goodbye dreams didn't come true you got all these people who are dealing with their uh the desire and Mm -hmm. the and the brokenness and fragmentation of that desire without any tell us that's what you're describing there's no unto what is this desire for that we can agree upon and so then you've got i I don't know how to answer that question in some research bunker somewhere well going back to your example of the family member like the only way to address the family member who hurt you is not to read and research, you know, how abuse works, you know, or whatever. Like, you don't do that. You go to them and yeah. you talk to them. It's the yeah. only way to work it out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Sky, uh, thanks so much for being with us today. No, I loved it. Thanks. You guys are asking fantastic questions, and I hope you, you know, continue to wrestle with them and bring on other voices that can help answer them. Well, that's true. I'll be listening. That's what we Good. hope. All right. Great. How can people who want to hear more from you, how can they connect with you um, outside this podcast? Yeah. You already mentioned the Holy Post podcast that I do with Phil Vischer. That's probably the most accessible thing. And then um, a significant part of my ministry now is a daily devotional that I write called mm-hmm. With God Daily. Yeah. 
So people can go to withgoddaily.com and learn more about that and sign up. But that's kind of a way to, to uh, awesome. bring my voice into your life on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. And hopefully not just my voice, but a way of finding communion with God. So yes. there's an app and an email devotional connected to With God Daily. Okay. Awesome, dude. That's great. Bless you. Thank you. Bless you guys. Thank you for the good work you're doing. Yeah. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you enjoy learning from this podcast, please be sure to show your support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. Be sure to share with your friends on social media too. And we would love to hear from you. So please email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. You can join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.